Well, welcome to our second and final discussion of the Proverbs. In some ways, I think it's interesting we chose to stretch it two weeks. Now, um, but I think it's probably good. I hope what you're feeling is that the reading is not overbearing. You know, the amount of time to wade through this is not awful. When we did the Red Book, there were times it was awful. <laughs> the amount. Um, that said, hopefully you've got a little more time to kind of chew this over. And with that chewing, again, I start with my awful question. Um, reflections since last week that have come to this week. Um, ways in which this material we've read has you know, what it's done for you, either individually or as a whole. Um, what are you doing with the Proverbs, or what are they doing for you? I, I just, I want to say to this group that I'm Catholic, so that, and I'm, you know, cradle Catholic from, from the 50s and 60s. We, ne- we rarely read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Went to Catholic school for seven, eight, nine years. And we knew a lot of stories, but we didn't really delve into it. Now, for all, as an adult, I've been a lector for many, many years. I've read a lot of pieces, and, and I know the years, you know. But I've never read Proverbs. So, is that the confession? Yeah, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I've never read Proverbs. I knew what they meant. I knew it was advice, and, you know, that, but I never read it. And so yesterday, Tim read it, because he's completely different in his his religious raising. I was so thrilled by it. I love the poetry of it. I love the the whole, like, alliteration, the words, the way they're laid. It's like, man, who wrote these things? And it's really... You know, maybe it sounds naive, but it's really a guide, a real true guide from individual to your relationship with God, to your relationship with family, with community. They, don't, they didn't leave anything out, and it's quite beautiful. So that's how it struck me. Thank you. Anybody else up front here? Yeah. Oh, 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 I read that one. At first, they were overwhelming because there were so many of them. And you're trying to figure out how to distill that down so that I would remember what I I was reading. And so I I went back and began to kind of piece them together. And I guess what I need to do is to go back and take a look at the ones that strike me the most and to circle them or something so that I will be, I can go back to those. Because the conviction as a whole is very overwhelming. Yeah, I, I must say, husband and wife, he read, he read first, and he's done a whole lot more Bible stuff than I have. He said, two weeks ago, he said, honey, don't read them. They're boring, they're awful, they're repetitive. <laughs> just because I do reading and because I'm really wanting to understand from my perspective, I thought the complete opposite. I was rereading and I'd say, Tim, mm-hmm. listen to this, and listen to this one, and then listen to this one. Yeah. This, is, this is gorgeous, this is magnificent stuff. But it, I don't know why we just came out of it totally at 
opposite ends. Well, I think the truth is that my own experience with Bible is like every time I return, I'm surprised by what's gripping and what isn't. And some things that I used to find very gripping are like not anymore. And then they might be again. I mean, I think that's the interesting thing is in some ways, again, I think as much as we read the Bible, the Bible also reads us. So um, there's times when I've been more enamored with Proverbs than I am at this point in my life, and that may change again. I just want to be upfront about that. But I think that's sort of the magic about, it's sort of like when you look at a photo album, you know, the research sort of says um, you actually have a different reaction to a photo every time you look at it, depending upon your context. And I think this is very similar. I'll just say one other thing. The role of women and I'm not sure if I interpreted this, but the role of women is so um, repressed, mm-hmm. and, and yet they're to blame for everything. It, yeah. it, it feels like, it felt like that, and this is a very general, um, but we, they're to blame and they're responsible. It's so much is up to them, yeah. to the woman in the house, and that seems so, mm, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I had really mixed, and, and having grown up in uh, the 60s, 70s, Catholic, Hispanic, that's the way women were seen in my culture. Yeah. And my father said to me, as an older daughter, and this, this is this may be over telling, but my father said to me, You are my oldest. You're intelligent, you're pretty, you will have terrible trouble. The first time you go up against a job, some white person is going to get it. And you're just, it doesn't matter if you have a college degree, I don't care what, you're going to fall on your face, you're going to learn to get up, brush your teeth, say it like that exactly, but basically, listen, because you are my daughter, and you're the best that I have to be. So he was, there was within, and he said to me once, you don't have to be like the women in this town, and you don't have to be like your mother, which was for many years that was a struggle because it but it wasn't that he was putting down my mom yeah i mean as i rethink of it uh and this brought back a lot of that i think thanks probably more or less my age but i don't know what your backgrounds are so that's the way it struck me it was very well, thanks. Is it okay to talk about women a little bit? And it always, always interrupt me with what you want to do, but I think you opened the door. There were a couple of things I wanted to kind of highlight that the book did for us, and I'm, again, this is your time, so you can say enough of that. <laughs> One of them is women. So there's a particular proverb, better to live on the roof, on the corner of a roof than with a quarrelsome wife. Or a quarrelsome wife is like a leaky roof. And it's helpful to remember, I think, um, women are commodities. They're property that belong to men. So in that sense, a woman is a possession like a house is a possession. And to equate a quarrelsome possession with a leaking house is a (laughs) one-to-one. You own both things. Um... We've moved away from that some in many parts of the world, and so that makes it a little difficult. But please do remember that in the modern wedding ceremony, which is actually quite ancient, the father gives the daughter away because he owns her, and it's a transfer of goods. 
Now, I'm not saying it can't mean something other than that, but that's the origin of it. <laughs> um, we still hold on to that. So, a woman, a, a complaining woman is like a bad roof. Fix it. <laughs> and how do you fix the leaky woman property? I mean, that's an interesting question, right? It presumes, though, that the man holds the woman, and just as a man can fix a roof, a man can fix a woman, and as a man can sell a home, a man can also divest himself of the woman goods. Does that sort of make sense? Again, I think we've stepped away from that some, some. Because when we get to Proverbs 31, and I recently preached on this because it showed up in a lectionary, uh, the whole final bit of the chapter is, it says, a capable wife who can find. <laughs> what would be interesting is a chapter that says a capable husband who can find. We don't ever get that in the Bible because women are acquired, men aren't. I just want to say that. When you read the capable wife chapter, see, as a, as a little boy, uh, I grew up in the evangelical world, and nothing bad about it, but we would give this, um, we would give this, Proverbs 31, like on a bookmark on Mother's Day to all the women. A capable wife who can find her children, call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. And that sounds really pretty, but when you think about it, when you read that bit, the capable woman is the one who does all the cooking and all the cleaning and all the educating, and then she also makes money on the side, but she can't keep it. She gives it, of course, to her husband, who actually owns her and the money. And he'll let her have a little bit of it. <laughs> That's how it reads. If he wants to. But he should, because she, you know, she did a good thing. She clothes her kids in scarlet, which means... You need to know that's like putting them in, um, what, what's, in Gucci clothes, right? She, she makes enough money with the industry she does after she's done all the cooking and cleaning and the kids have gone to bed and she's up tirelessly working to put the kids in Bugatti. I mean, that, that's a capable woman. Now, it didn't say the man's doing any of that stuff. And then she'll go out and invest money in property that she can't own for her husband so that she can make more money, you see. And then the husband will say, why don't you buy a purse with all the proceeds you've made? <laughs> this is, remember, before things like child support and alimony even existed. So I want to say in some ways, like, hey, this is a, an affirming thing, but I'm not sure it is. I just want to raise that up because, again, this is such a different view about women. And, and maybe I just made that nasty for you. Um, it doesn't have to be, even though I want to tell you I, it's, I struggle with this one. I struggle with this one a little bit. Other thoughts on women in Proverbs? There, what I don't understand, and we talked about this, that the women that hung around the temple were prostitutes. Yes. They didn't hang out. That's what they had to do. <laughs> so, if it's, it's, it says in Proverbs, do not commit adultery. Mm -hmm. So when man went to have a prostitute at the temple, that was not considered adultery? Adultery, and we've really got to get our heads around this because we've culturally changed the map. 
Adultery is when you have sexual relationship with a woman that is already owned by a husband. So see, if you read the book of Leviticus, if you have sex with a virgin, you owe her dad the bride price. So you can do it as long as you can pay the bill. You can make a prostitute out of any woman you want. It doesn't have to be consensual. You just have to pay for it. So we think, oh, like marriage is this high institution. Not always. And again, it, it, it undergirds that women had very little say in the matter. And again, we saw that when we read Ruth, especially when we think about Leverite marriage. We saw that when we read Esther. Here it is in Proverbs again. And remember, 50 years ago, if you were a woman in this country and you wanted a career, you could be a secretary, a nurse, or a teacher, and that's about it. And, and the pay was very low on all of those. Hey, the pay's going up because men are entering the profession. There are male nurses now, and they demand higher wages, so nurses get paid more. There are male teachers now. Not in elementary school, those are probably pedophiles. I mean, this is how we approach that. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying we have this huge way that we react about this, you know? Um, because it's, it's basically like people will look at him and go, why would a guy be interested in being around small children? Because that's women's because work. that's women's work. Right. Women's work. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I, this, I was the first Hispanic woman principal placed in a middle in the middle school in Pasadena, Texas, in 1993. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and there were white guys, Pasadena cool. guys, who were, who, who were furious that they weren't lying to be principal. And we had, because we had a very liberal superintendent <coughs> for one year, because then he was fired. But I was the first Hispanic woman principal. And it wasn't a Hispanic neighborhood. The neighborhood was static, but the city of Pasadena, the white people were not static. Yeah. This, this is tough. And I think the reason I wanted to park here just a little bit more is because I grew up that the Bible is inerrant. And I told you, I think there's major problems with that. Um, so, okay, maybe the Bible's infallible, but this, I think, is an issue here, right? I mean, I, 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 I didn't believe this treatment of women is ethical or godly or right. So, so I think the culture to which and in which this was written had some fundamental flaws. right? And I think this is really important as we act to the Bible. Is it describing the way people are treated and maybe in that system the way to function or is it prescribing the way we are to be? And just as a reflection of this, I know we've talked about this. I don't want to be overly political, but I'm going to introduce something. It seems like one of the most hated people politically is Hillary Clinton. And I just want to name this. Um, Whether you like her or not, I'm suspicious she would be much less hated if she was male. Um, Because I think the things that she's done, right or wrong, are sort of normal politician things, if you'll forgive me for saying. But because she's a woman, she's despised, where a man would simply just be looked down upon. Right? So there's a difference between looking down and despising. And the only thing I can figure out is it's because she's a woman. 
So I, I think in some ways we still have this going on a little bit. Um, and, you know, I think it's changing a little bit uh, as we think about being uh, as more, as sort of more men are being stay-at-home dads, which is sort of like, oh, what a sweet guy. You know, how sweet oh, yeah. did he volunteer? Yeah. Oh, like he cooks one meal a week. That's a keeper. You know, I mean, this, this is an interesting <laughs> sort of thing. Or men get praised for babysitting their own children. Right. And it's like, dude... <laughs> You're not... Or, and I can tell you, um, I can take my daughter to work and I'm that sweet dad. If my wife took her daughter to work, like, how inappropriate and unprofessional. Now... And how is it going to hold her back by having her child there when she's supposed to be focusing on work? And this is tough. This is tough. And then at the same time, I can tell you... um, that when you do all of the cooking and the cleaning and the laundry, that can become embittering. It doesn't matter who's doing it. Um, it doesn't. So, um, there, there, there we have it. And, and, and this is part of, I think, where, we're, where we continually do have to wrestle with, in some ways, vestiges of this cultural heritage and what we are going to do about it. I hope that's okay to name. And then the, the question that we had last week is, what's wise and what's shrewd? Because those are, I think we talked about, very different things, wisdom and shrewdness. Yeah. I maybe open the door you want to pursue, or we should close it. It's up to you. Any other thoughts about women in, in Proverbs? How well... Looking at Proverbs with the eyes of today, how are we supposed are we supposed to, to not pay attention to them? How to try to un- understand them and, to, and and make them something that we can use today? It's a great question, and I think probably it depends on how again we 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 choose to view the Bible. Is the Bible always prescribing our behavior? If we say yes, then women should only be Sunday school teachers because they can teach children, but they should never be preachers. And there are traditions that do that, right? Because women are frankly inferior to men, and so only men should be pastors. And there are people who who will say absolutely that's right, and that's what we should do. Um, I think another opportunity is to say, all right, so, so, so this was a way of trying to, frankly, have order. And then our question is, is that godly and does it need updating? And in that sense, right, uh, the Bible becomes sort of, can become an anchor as a conversation partner. But in mature conversations, we can disagree without killing the partner, <laughs> if that sort of makes sense. And so what Thomas Jefferson did is he got rid of everything he didn't like, which is called idolatry. It's called creating God in our own image. Now, in some ways, let's be honest, we all do that. But if we are able to keep, as sacred conversation partner, viewpoints different from our own and say, okay, like I'm going to continue to return to you and I might continue to disagree with you, I think that's another sort of option that we have. Um, And I always think there's this interesting thing, which is to examine ways in which we aren't living into our own ascribed values. They think sometimes we can easily say, 
oh, like, I'm all over this women business. Like, I, I believe in equality and all that. But, you know, I, I read this very interesting book a couple of years ago, and it's called um, Blind Spot. It's possible you've read this as well. Um, and, and, you know, actually your eye has a blind spot. If you take a written page and you hold it at a precise distance from your eye, you can't see the page. <laughs> it's right in front of you, but your eye can't see it. Like it will look around it. And so um, it turns out that there's this method of testing whether or not you bear certain prejudice unconsciously, subconsciously, which is this way of association. Like, like you, you associate like flowers with good things and bugs with bad things. And you fly through that because we just, in general, have that prejudice. And then when you have to do the reverse, you get real slow. I, I, like you have really weird response time. Um, so the same thing happens when you associate women with good or, or black with good and white with bad. Like this is really an interesting thing. And um, people have been using it for a long time to help determine some subconscious bias. Now, I don't know that I represented the book very well, but what I would suggest to you is even as liberated men have got vestiges of this cultural imprint on us, and I would dare say the number one reason uh, in evangelical churches why women aren't preachers is because of women, not because of men. That sounds strange, because aren't the men doing the suppressing? Well, they are, uh, but with women's consent. Because if the women said no, and women are 80% of church attendance, that would vanish in a hot second. I just, just want to say. In a Catholic church, being Catholic, women would not want to have a woman I think, I think there is a certain percentage that would. Um, but they don't feel strong enough to girl-cop the church. Right. Because if women girl-cop the church, yeah. Yeah. then they're either going to make their own new church, yeah. mm -hmm. or the church is going to feel the pressure and say, well, we can't survive without this. I mean, I just think that's it. There would be no volunteers. Because all the volunteering is generally the Catholic church done by women. Generally. That's true of most churches. Yeah. 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 The cleaning, the everything, yeah. everything, doing the, the tape, like, you know, all the stuff. And I'm not trying to say women should girl cot. No, no. Notice women don't boycott, that's what men do. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying there should be a girl cot, but I'm saying if there were, then there would be a fundamentally dis different institution one way or another. Either there would be a created female-centric or female-affirming Roman Catholic Church, or from political pressure and economic pressure that you just have to change. I mean, that's just sort of the deal. I, I'm not saying shame on the women either, because we just, we sort of all own this, right? And again, when you're scripted to grow up a certain way, you are, and I think that's actually part of the Proverbs, is what do we do with the scripts that we're given, right? So again, um, when people see my daughter, the kind of feedback she usually gets is, what a pretty dress. What a pretty dress. Uh, and she wears some pretty dresses, but she also is kind of frumpy, I just, <laughs> I just want to say. And I'm really grateful for that. But culturally, we tend to give different feedback to girls and boys, and that's very formative. Remember, boys are not usually called bossy. Even if you did that at home, fine, but in general, they're not. Boys are leaders, 
and girls who have strong opinions are bossy. And, right? and so this is a different sort of scripting. Our default pronoun is masculine. Our default pronoun. They're, they're the, uh, the worst critics of other women. Because women have accepted the cultural typing. And, That's and it. there is a lot of jealousy there. Yeah. You know, in the 70s, I remember those guys, you know, 60s and 70s, coming of age for somebody my age, I used to say I'd much prefer the company of men. So I grew up with, with brothers and lots of cousins. There were only two girl cousins. There were all, there were a lot of guys where I could climb trees, I could run as fast, I could do all that. And I'd say I prefer the company of men. And then I read a piece Gloria Steinem wrote somewhere. And she said, think about what you're saying or thinking when you say that. Yeah. I was like, oh dear, she's absolutely right. And that... So these are interesting things to think about, proverbially, right? I mean, so I read an article by, um, oh man, who is that lady? Who sort of, this was an article in the New York Times 30 years ago that said women demean themselves when they refuse to share their age on their birthday because they're accepting the type that old women are inferior to young ones instead of claiming that my age, just like in a man, age equates to wisdom and status and polish, Right when women buy into that, say, "Oh, I'm 28 again," um, they're buying right into this thing that tells them that they're invaluable because of their age. Of it, yeah. So, so this interesting thing to think about proverbs. I read this one yesterday um, by this this lady who, growing up, anytime her mom went to the grocery store and the Sports Illustrated swimsuit edition was out on the rack by the register, she would ask to speak to the manager and say, "This is inappropriate for my children to see that a women's." value is in her body and yeah. her looks and the manager would wrangle or whatever and eventually they would like move them out of children's view but then they would bring them back or next year they'd have the, ins the thing right there and, and the three daughters had to sit while this happened over and over and over again and finally they said like would you quit doing that we're just tired of waiting and my mom said no <laughs> it's critical that you hear from me and the manager hear from me and everybody around hear from me this is not okay even if the issue comes back it's important that we say not okay um, I sort of thought that was a proverb I mean, that was an interesting sort of new proverb to think about, that just because we can't change a social structure doesn't mean we shouldn't resist it. I mean, that, that's an interesting bit, if that makes sense. I'm being really, really political, and I probably should shush about this. Then would it be possible for us to rewrite the proverbs? Well, I, I, I actually think we're invited, and you can, we can all disagree about this, but you know, there's, there's four Gospels, and, and just jumping ahead, the very middle line of Mark's Gospel, dead in the middle, not by verse number, but by the Gospel itself, is the line, who do you say I am? And I would suggest to you, Mark asks us to say, what's the Gospel according to Tim? What's the Gospel according to Jane? and Bonnie, and Mary Ruth. I mean, I think the Gospels themselves say there's four, but there need to be five. <laughs> so who do we say Jesus is? What's the good news for us? And in that vein, I think Scripture invites us to have a holy conversation with our own name attached to the book. So, yeah, I think we are invited to figure out what are real proverbs? Because again, the question is, some of these, I think, are very shrewd. I'm not sure they're all wise. But it, uh, could you consider it just 
more or less historic, uh, a historic book in the Bible to allow us to know what the culture was like. What was going that on, time. yeah. And yet we can still glean from the beauty and, and the, the wonderful verses that do give us a pattern uh, for, for living. Yes, and, and that's another pick and choose what you want from the Bible, but mm -hmm. perhaps personally, okay, according to Proverbs, according to me, I think it's a, a, a beautiful chapter and it has so many wonderful words and also encouragements. But then at the same time, I think the, the, the part about the women and, and the requirements, and I mean, it's just like we don't do animal sacrifices anymore and we don't take that to heart still do with yeah, that yeah but it, it's just a wonderful history and beautifully written history of the, of the times I think that's very fair, and I would just, if I could add the writer, I think then we always have before us, what do we do with this material? Do we say, oh, we've grown past that, or do we always have the opportunity to say, have we really? And, and I think the question is, what does wisdom bid us to do? Um, just, just to make sure I'm respectful to the whole book, though, but it's okay, let's transition. Women will show up again, by the way, don't worry. Um, <laughs> If you don't mind me saying, uh, the, the, the book talked about poetry a little bit, and you know the hardest thing to do in poetry, uh, to do with poetry is to translate it from one language to another. So there's a few techniques we often miss, but I want you to know them now because they show up and we'll, we'll see them again in the Psalms. One of the most um, ubiquitous ones in Hebrew poetry is called parallelism. Which is like when there's a verse, let's say verse 3, there's idea A, and then in the same verse, there's idea A prime. It's sort of a recitation of the same idea, but in different works. Like this. Foolish children are a grief to their father and bitterness to her who bore them. Now you might say, no, Mike, that's just one idea. It's actually, it, well, there's two different ideas. Now, it's one idea being repeated so that you get the whole bit, if that sort of makes sense. Which is why, if you ever wonder, why do we read the Psalms antiphonally by the half verse? That's because, in general, the Psalms do this more often than they do anything else. The Lord is my shepherd... I shall not want. Mike, those are two different ideas. No, they're exactly the same idea. Because the Lord is my shepherd, in different words, I won't want. Does that sort of make sense? No, it's not always happening in Hebrew. It just usually is. <laughs> That's what I want you to know. Which is an interesting thing sometimes when you read a verse to say, huh, is the second half reiterating the first. And by the way, it's not divided in terms of word count. Interestingly enough, in Hebrew, when you read something, there's a little thing here called the atna, and the rabbis had put that, again, under the text, right? Because they, they didn't rewrite it. They just went and marked it like an editorial mark. They divided it in terms of sense, not in terms of balance of number of words. So sometimes the parallel bit will divide it between 18 words and three, if, if that makes sense, what I'm saying. Uh, again, we don't always 
see it, and in general, we don't have poems. This is not prized in English poetry, but it is the most ubiquitous thing in Hebrew poetry. Another thing that happens different from this is something called chiasm, and we do have this with rhyme, which is A-B-B-A. But it doesn't mean rhyme. It could mean in terms of sense. Okay? So, hey, this could be a time in which two verses are doing a parallelism. These are parallel, and these are parallel. Does that sort of make sense? Now, if we were to do an in-depth analysis of poetry, I could show you this a little bit more, but they mentioned it in the book, so I want to follow it up with you now. You'll see it more in the Psalter, and I don't know how slowly you choose to read the readings. If you slow down, you, you, you can sort of consider, oh, is this doing that, or is it doing this? And it's up to you. Sometimes there'll be a letter C in the middle, by the way, which is called a ring chiasm, whatever. All right. <laughs> This is the sort of stuff you did in the 10th grade that you thought, wow, I thought I liked poetry until we had to do all that. Um, some of you may, may have made you appreciate it more. One of the things we lose are the acrostics, right? For example, it could be uh, that there's every, the first verse, it goes all the way through the alphabet like that, where the first line starts with an A and then a B and then a C and a D. That doesn't translate well. You know, it just doesn't translate well. Another one could be, as again, in Psalm 119, that in every set, the first seven verses, everything starts with the first letter, and then the next seven, everyone starts with the second letter. That's lost on you because you don't read Hebrew. Now, you may say, hey, um, that, I mean, that doesn't really matter, but it, it, it's a poetic device to help you slow down and appreciate the words, but we don't have it. I mean, it's just not, it's not there. You'd have to read a footnote in your Bible to hear, oh, in Hebrew it does this. Right, that's a fun fact, but it doesn't slow you down when you read. So, I mean, that's totally lost. Um, there's another bit that Hebrew poetry loves to do, which is a pun. And we know what puns are. But, you know, so in Hebrew, just to give you an example, this one's from Isaiah. God came looking for mishpat, which means justice, and God found and said mitzpah, which means iniquity. Now look, justice and iniquity are not puns. They sound nothing alike. Mishpah and mitzpah, they, they're pretty close. <laughs> so they're so close in sound and so different in actuality that it's this poetic pun device. Again, your translator cannot give you that. So it lost on us, completely lost. You know, it's interesting you're saying that you're really you're developing the concept of the poetry. I was a poetry reader. I used to compete in, in college, UIL. I don't know if you guys probably did UIL stuff. And I used to be, read poetry and uh, out loud and others. <laughs> but this this would be fun, exciting to take pieces of this and, and do that kind of competition or readings like that because there's so much in there and if you're a good reader you could really pass i mean share some yeah really good stuff yeah i mean to be honest with you to decode poetry you have to be fluent in a different language you know if you're yeah. not fluent yes. poetry doesn't work because you're struggling so much to say uh, whether I mean again whatever language it is you're struggling to say okay I see this word mishpat the dictionary says that means iniquity now I have to look up the next word because I don't know what it means either I mean really poetry is for the fluent so if you want to read Goethe in German 
You don't do that in year one. Uh, you theoretically could read it, but the poetry would be lost on you, if that sort of makes sense. And the same, this is, a, this is AP level. You know, if you're in AP Latin, you read the Aeneid by Virgil. Um, you could theoretically read it your second year of Latin, but all the devices would be lost on you. Does that sort of make sense? I never thought about that, but I, my, I spoke Spanish before I spoke English, and I can read and write both languages fluently. Italian is easy for me to understand because there's so many similarities. Yes. Portuguese is too, but French is not because of all the Anglo-Saxon uh, you know, impact on, on that language because of where it's located, where mm -hmm. uh, France is located. But, wow, uh, that I, maybe because of that, I just I wanted to stand up and just read this out loud. Yeah. I've never read it before. It's I was really thrilled with it. So. Thanks. Um, if I can ship any questions about poetry, again, that's just sort of advice. And like I said, I've told you what it is, and most of it's going to be lost on you, except for parallelism. Because I think it's always a good question when you read a piece of Hebrew poetry to say, is the second half telling me reiterating the first half? Mm -hmm. um, I think another thought to sort of mention that the book sort of picked up just for a second and then quickly dropped out is um, the understanding of commandments. And, um, you know, many of us have, this, have, in, have inherited this idea of what happened up on top of Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, right? Moses goes up there, and God says, here are the ten, the ten commandments, right? In English. In Hebrew, they're not called that. <laughs> In Hebrew, they're called the ten words. The Hebrew word for this is davarim. Um, in Greek... They're called the Decalogue. Deca, like deci, meaning ten. And logos meaning word. They're the ten words. And what's helpful to know is that in Hebrew, they literally are ten words. <laughs> Not ten sentences, ten words. Because in Hebrew, what you're able to do is make a compound word with the word Steal, not steal, is one word. Not kill is one word. Not idle is one word. So ten words. And in English, they look like ten propositions. Right? Well, it's helpful to know that in Hebrew, they're not called the Ten Commandments. Now, Hebrew has a word for commands, but they're called the ten words. And I want you to think about, actually, just for a second with me, how different it is to think of these as words versus commands. Contextually, remember, the Hebrew people have been slaves. Well, they grew up in slavery, right? And when you're a slave, you do what you're told, right? There's no dialogue, there's do what you're told. And so what the people want in their slave mentality is to be told by their new master, God, what to do. So interesting, they don't want to leave their mentality behind. They want to keep that and just have a new, better master. So, your wish is my command. <laughs> your word is my command. Notice so that in the commandments, there's really only two positives out of ten. Honor your parents. Honor the Sabbath. 
Everything else is a negative. Don't steal, don't lie, don't kill, don't covet, don't commit adultery. Don't make idols. Don't say God's name. Don't put other gods before God. So I put before you the interesting thing about the commandments. Could you keep all the commandments and never know your neighbor? Well, actually, I think you'd have an easier job keeping the commandments if you didn't know your neighbor. Because then you wouldn't know whether or not you were attracted to their wife. Sorry, there's no adultery with men. It's always the woman who gets the punishment for that. Um, You wouldn't know whether they were attractive to you. You wouldn't know what they had, so you couldn't covet it. If you don't know them, they're unlikely to make you angry enough to kill them. You, you see how this goes, or lie to them, because if you never talk to them, you can't lie. Yeah. And I would ask you, is it better to keep the commandments, or is it better to have a positive relationship with your neighbor? Well, I think it's wiser to have a positive relationship with your neighbor even though relationships always introduce the possibility of negativity. I mean, really, your best chance of keeping all the commandments is to live alone. In isolation in the wilderness. So I think it's helpful to think about the difference between does God want us to keep commands or are these ten words that are sort of a, perhaps a minimum or a starting point for how we might consider living with one another. I mean, the truth is, if you lie and steal and kill, it is hard to have a positive relationship. However, those don't limit what a positive relationship looks like. They're just sort of a starting point. And I wonder if this isn't a way to think about the Proverbs. These could be a starting point that we're invited to converse with and sound out what wisdom is. How interesting you say that, Sandra, because I grew up in a church that talked about relationship, but frankly, we understood Jesus as giving us commandments. And how interesting, we sure thought that women were second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. And, wow, if I were still in the church that raised me, then... um, It doesn't really matter whether a political candidate has had sex with a 13-year-old. It matters if they're Republican. Of course, I grew up in the same church. Yes. But I asked if I could leave it when I was 12, and I didn't get to because, you know, your family would have been upset. But I did leave it. I I mean, I don't just um, totally disown it now because I did. The Baptist church is a very warm church as you come in. You don't realize that it's got all these rules and things until after you're part of it in a way. And I want to be fair. The Episcopal Church has got some crazy rules. (laughs) And as an adult, it's not like we just pick which rules we happen to like the best. I mean, the truth is, there's formation that goes on in us, right? And it's not like we can just say, well, I'm done with being a Methodist. I'm going to pick to be a free Lutheran because I like that better. I mean... I don't know that we just get to pick and choose. The truth is the way we were formed is the way we were formed. And, and I'll be a recovering independent Christian until I die. 
in some ways they were great gifts and I'm grateful for some of that. But in other ways, I will, there's things that will always be there for me to recover from. Even if I choose a different church, it doesn't matter. I've already been imprinted with that stuff. Does it? I hope that makes sense. Yes, because I heard a saying here not too long ago. Even if you convert to another church, you always see it through the eyes of where you began. Well, I think that's right. And so I'll tell you there's this interesting thing. I'm just going to air some Episcopal laundry just for a second, right? If a... A rector is not functioning well at a church. Maybe they're really negative. It's an unhappy match. People often can't understand why the bishop doesn't remove the rector. I mean, they're the bishop. They can do whatever they want. No, they can't. (laughs) A rector cannot be removed by a bishop unless they steal money or have a very public and well-known affair or molestation of some kid. The bishop is actually powerless to remove a rector. We're tenured the day we're hired. So a rector can ruin a church. The only way you can get rid of a rector is trim their salary until they choose to leave. And they may not. And trimming their salary is really, really hard because we signed a letter of agreement, a tenured letter of agreement when I came. Now, there's pluses. I can preach my conscience and you have to please the constituency. There's a big minus. I could give no pastoral care. I could hate my people. Do you, you, you get what I'm saying? What's curious is that many Episcopalians don't understand the rules of the church and why a malfunctioning rector would be left in place by a bishop. Or why didn't a bishop do something about it? The canons of the church say they can't. <laughs> How strange. Now, again, there's reasons for that. Like intellectual freedom, preach my conscience. As a Southern Baptist, I could preach a sermon the congregation didn't like, and they could change the locks on the parsonage that day. Is that true in the Catholic Church also? Is that why priests are just around? Well, uh, well, there's a very different bit in the Catholic Church. You see, in the Episcopal Church, not the Church of England, the Episcopal Church is, has a separation of powers, just like the American government. We have a federalist system. There's states' rights, and there's federal rights. In the Catholic Church, and in the Anglican Church, there's federal rights. <laughs> That's it. The Federation is the Pope. So the Pope will do whatever. Now, the bishop has more power than any rector does. However, the rector has states' rights. I, I hope that makes sense, what I'm saying. There's the national church, which can say whatever they want to, and then the bishop can do whatever they want in their diocese. So the national church could say, I'll just take a hypothetical, gay marriage is a sacrament. And a bishop can say, not in my diocese. And what will happen? Not in their diocese. That's it. Because there's a separation of powers. See, every tradition has those rules. And sometimes we don't get them. And I don't know that we can see, as a, I grew up in a congregation, so the congregation has all the power. We own the property. We hire the person. The salary is ours. And in this tradition, it's not that way. <laughs> so, so if you have a, a pastor who was accused of molestation, this, this Protestant recently said to me, all they do is get rid of because they have they, they work for their church, for that church, they get rid of them. And they go, they just dismiss them. So then they can go to some other church 
and the same thing happens to them, and there, they, that, he does the same thing, and he goes to some other church. And eventually, he said, the only way they get rid of, they, they disappear is they have a, a, a degree in something else, so then they become a pharmacist, or they, I don't know, they become yeah. something else. But the fact that they still have that problem of, molesting children or what I, uh, they're they're still out there uh, sure and it's and this I think and now I want to give you the grid on Proverbs too so Proverbs I think deals with questions like that but what it doesn't deal with is what happens to somebody who had that incident when they were 18 and in what way can they ever be redeemed so maybe you know the law if an 18 year old has sexual relationship with a 17 year old Pedophile. You may say, well, okay, you know, I mean, really, are you an adult when you turn 18? Is there something magic that happens on your birthday? And in certain states, right, because of Megan's law, which is a great law, but that 18-year-old can no longer live within a certain distance of a school or child care center for something they did consensually with a 17-year-old. And you may say, hey, Mike, like that happens rarely, but it happens. happens. (laughs) And this, I think, is an interesting bit about Proverbs. See, we read one of the Proverbs (laughs) that says it's folly to acquit the guilty or to imprison the innocent. And we often have to pick which thing we're more worried about. Are we more worried about an innocent person going free I'm sorry, a guilty person going free or an innocent person being punished. Because I'm not really sure how we hold on to both of those at the same time. Right? If, you, if the level of reasonable doubt <laughs> is ratcheted up, you get one thing, and if it's ratcheted down, you get the other. Interestingly enough, uh, in statistics, this is the difference between a type 1 and a type 2 error. So I get that that's great. We want to be worried about both. How do you enforce both at the same time? Proverbs don't tell us how to do that. Does that sort of make sense, sort of what, what, what I'm saying? I mean, this is, again, something I think we continue to struggle with. And at the end of the day, I think we ultimately have to pick which one bothers us more. Proverbs also puts a lot of impetus upon, and we talked about this last week, upon parents. If your kids are bad, it's your fault. That's, I'm sorry, that's the message of Proverbs, you know, and um, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes not. And, and I think this is a really interesting thing, just to share a story. When I was a high school teacher, I had this kid who would not do his work. This was at a private school. I think they were paying $12,000, $13,000 a year to send their kid to this school. He was totally capable of doing the work. I mean, he was probably really like somewhere between a, I mean, he was a B or B plus student, you know, but that was good because I had kind of high standards, you know. Um, and his poor parents, you know, they wanted me to sign off on his homework every day. And I thought, geez, you know. <laughs> Uh, and they were, and they couldn't get his work turned in. And I thought, wow, like I don't understand how you've raised this kid and you can't get him to do their work. And at the time, I thought, well, you know, what's going on at home? Let me tell you how unfortunate <laughs> uh, it is to be in that parent's position, which I am in. Um, 
there are kids who have parents who model hard work, model academic and professional success, and preach it. So they talk it and they do it, and their children are very different from them. Proverbs doesn't leave a lot of empathy for those parents. I just, I just want to say that. And to be honest with you, socially, I don't think we do either. In general, I think what happens socially, if a kid is misbehaving in a very, well, antisocial way, I wonder what's happening at home. I would tell you, again, what's very difficult is I could think of three or four families who attend St. Thomas right now who would not dare share what's going on at home because they know they'll be judged. What does that mean? Well, if they say, I'm having a hard time with my teenager, somebody would say, oh, yep, I remember when um, Steve was getting a C in chemistry, but we turned that around. Hard time does not mean C. No. <laughs> it actually no. doesn't mean F. No. Hard time could mean opioid addiction. Yes. But see, if you say that, you are opening the doors for people to judge you as a parent. Absolutely. And it's not safe. And I would tell you, St. Thomas is actually very, in my opinion, a very safe place. But we live with this fundamental fear that we'll be judged as parents for the choices that our children make. And in some cases, it is true. Not that's in all the cases. thing. It sometimes that's, is that's, true. That's part of the problem. Is because I've dealt, <clears throat> as you know, with children who have come. What what they need is somebody to break the cycle of what's you know their parents were unable to parent because they weren't parented. Yeah. Because they weren't parented because they weren't parented. It's, it's a generational thing. And and I wasn't here last week, but I listened to the podcast, and you brought this up at the end, and I said something to Mike about it this morning. <clears throat> After two of the boys in particular, I got two of them, both of them were facing homelessness um, by their, well, one, the mother called me and said, come get him or he will be on the street. He will be, I, and... And so I did. The other one came to us because, and, and again, you brought this up almost like verbatim. He got arrested for stealing a loaf of bread and a jar of peanut butter to feed himself and his little sister. Um, and there had been enough chaos in that family that the judge said to the mother. Um, and, and, and the reason there was no money in the house for food is because it was all going to drugs. That was a very, and these kids were told, your hunger is not as important as what, you know. Um, and I, but I know this family, and I know that the child's mother was also told the same thing by her mother over time. So it's, you know, and father. Um, after years of, and I love these boys, I love both of these boys with my whole heart, you know, he said I love you with my whole heart, with my um, bowels, <laughs> okay, there were certain things in them by the time they got to us, and we're not miracle workers, um, but there were certain things that 
were so broken in them um, that I'm not sure it would will ever be un you know be healed. Jo you, Joey, what did you do? Joey, mm -hmm. what do you do? What do I do? Yeah, as as who are these children that you work with? That I, I knew them through my children's friends. I knew oh, I was very involved with my children's friends. <clears throat> I've had children come to my house to hide as opposed to being sent to there's a movie coming out about it called Boy Erased um, Conversion Therapy for yeah. Homosexuals um, I've had a lot of encounters with the police um, <clears throat> but when Joey first came to live with us the boy that got arrested for stealing he would eat every time he sat down to eat he would put his food in front of him and he'd sit like this yeah and eat like this. And he was 15, about to be 16 when he came. I tried really hard to get him when he was like 12, mm -hmm. um, but they wouldn't release him to us. Um, it's, I told Mike, I got kind of offended reading some of these proverbs because I was like, what about these people? What about these kids who are now, because now they're both adults, and they're not functioning very well. I mean, they're functioning as best they can. They're not in prison. They're not, you know, um, you can forget about any kind of education, because neither of them really got yeah. any sort of education. And one of them is, is actually pretty smart. Joey's an amazing artist. But it's, I, I felt kind of like, and, and Mike put it more to me this morning. What about my people? You know, how do you... I want to preface some of these proverbs when I read them and say, in a perfect world, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But it's not, you know, a perfect world. And there are also... I've also had kids come to my house who would whine and moan about their parents, and I knew their parents, and I would say to them, knock it off. You know, you're actually... Some of the other kids would say to them, your parents are trying to do what's right by you. Your parents are not letting you, your parents are not calling a lawyer to get you out of this DWI because they care about you. Yeah. You need to learn a lesson about this, you know? So it's, it's, it's kind of both sides. I see both sides. Um, and unfortunately for the parents who are really trying, it seems like because there are a lot who don't, they're all getting lumped together as, well, your child's doing this, so you must be a crappy parent just like that person over there who's on math, you know, because your children are exhibiting the same behavior, you know, so it's, it's unfair. Um, so when I read some of these, I, I got a little crossways <laughs> yeah. with some of them. Because, Sorry, I'm because, taking so much no, no. time. It, it, because you felt you got crossways because you felt this was lecturing. To I felt like it was kind of lecturing. I felt like there was a lot of this is how you should be with not a whole lot of how you get there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I felt like there was some contradiction. I don't dislike them, the proverbs. I mean, there's some, and to me, a lot of when I read it, I was kind of like, well, yeah, that's common sense. You know, don't put your hand on a red hot stove. Okay. You know, I won't do that. And to, to me was, um, and maybe, I, I don't know what's the difference. And, and I've read it a lot, so yeah. I think, okay. you know, there's a difference. Yeah, there's, um, 
And I, I worked, I, I was an inner cities principal uh, all my, my whole career. I, 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 for 30 years, I was in the inner cities. Yeah. In the yeah. worst cities yeah. in Houston and Wichita, Kansas, and, and just really hard, hardcore places. And, um, um, this is this is idealism, idealism yeah. idealistic, sure. but but the positive the good part of it is that it's there for people to read and, and discuss in this mm -hmm. room and in any way, so that even those parents because I had the same parents it, it, it was the, it was not the kid's fault he was they were in terrible situations mm -hmm. and there was only so much that I could do and. Right. And it was only until you get to a point where you, you embrace that and accept that. You know, I'm here at 7, I stay till 8, and I do it the best I can, and the kids love me. But I, and I love them, but I can't fix their... See, and I think that's an interesting bit, is to think about, really, um, again, what's, what's wisdom and what do we decide, define as wisdom? I mean, if I asked you as a parent, what would be the biggest failure that could happen as a parent. I'm not gonna ask that question, but I'm suspicious if I asked 200 people, most of them would say, my kid goes to jail. That would be my biggest failure as a parent is if my kid goes to jail, or my kid doesn't graduate high school. But the interesting thing about Proverbs is that we get this towards the end, you can't grind folly out of a fool. So this is this interesting thing, right? What if your kid doesn't take what you offer? Well, Proverbs says you can't grind folly out of them. Mm -hmm. So, well, it's your fault it got there, or is it? I mean, I think this is the hard sort of bit, you know? And I would tell you if we hear, this is a really hard thing as a parent, if you hear so-and-so's child committed suicide, we might go from... Oh, that's terrible to wonder what they did. If they'd been more supportive, if they'd been whatever, without even knowing. Or so-and-so got, they kicked them out of the house when they turned 18. Pfft, well, I would have been a better parent than that. I mean, I think this is a really interesting kind of conversation to think about um, what we do with that. Because, you know, there's this other phrase, and this is where it starts interesting to have a conversation even within the book. As iron sharpens iron, so does one man sharpen another. Uh, women are clearly not iron. Um, stepping aside from that, I grew up, what that meant is we're supposed to have arguments and help each other's viewpoint. But, you know, again, what we hear is um, if you answer before you listen, before you hear, that is the definition of folly and shame. How interesting in our political climate, mm -hmm. I would suggest to you, we've already decided what's true regardless of the facts. Um, we already know what we've decided is ethically or godly or right before hearing what the other person has to say. And so I don't know that iron sharpens iron. I actually just, I just think iron bangs over it again and again and again. I mean, I, I, I think in some ways there is an opportunity to kind of enter into the interior logic of this book and do some things very different than we're doing it. Or there's an opportunity to say, um, yes, I, I am the wise and you are the fool and I just, you're just going to be stupid your whole life because you're in whatever party you're in. Either way could represent the book, but I think the question is which way is the wise way. And you always have to ask, is it wise, is it wise 
to try to have a discussion about a hot button issue, knowing it's a hot button issue. Things to never talk about with my mother. Gay marriage. Never talk about that because we will not listen to each other. Mm -hmm. I will not listen to her. Part of it is because I already know what she thinks and I disagree. And that <laughs> makes me not want to listen. She needs to have a, a gay granddaughter. <laughs> my mother, that nine mother, we have yeah. that came out of the closet as senior in high school and my mother was devastated. But now, and my mother's now passed away. But then after that, my daddy was different. My daddy was like, get us a Christina, to her. Then later she changed she changed that. When it becomes personal Maybe. Not always. Not always. No. Not always. No. She, she was a very no. I, I think she was a very devoted person. To, I mean she prayed and all. And I think I, I God, God sort of like. See, I think you're guiding us to another, to another. Um, I mean, I would put a proverb before you that's not in the book, which is we change our defaults when we meet people first and labels second. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's a proverb, and I would tell you no amount of studying gay marriage is probably going to change your mind apart from knowing. Gay people. I, I mean, I, I think yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and maybe. I mean, the thing is, my mother probably. I don't know if she'll ever change her value. I know if if I were gay, it would break my mom's heart. But I know she would love me anyway. I know that about my mother, even though she may not know that about herself, right? Um, but I know as a result, talking about it with her is actually going to damage our relationship because I'm so adamant on my viewpoint, and she is on hers. So in that sense, iron is better kept away yeah. from iron. Yeah. If I were to go um, to particular parishioners or family members and talk about my concerns about particular politicians, I probably would jeopardize their ability to worship in this church. So it's best not to do that. That's my proverb because, and I'll tell you, I'm not saying they're guilty when I'm honest. We've both already decided what's true. So we therefore have no thing to talk about. All we will do is have competing monologues because there cannot be a dialogue. Um, I don't know what the Proverbs advice on that is. Am I foolish? Are they foolish? Are we both or do we just sort of have to live with knowing that situation? How do we respect each other? I mean, I think that's really, really important. Aristotle says, it's the mark of an educated mind to entertain an idea without being converted by it. I think that's a fair proverb. I think we rarely do it. <laughs> I think one of the most puzzling things, though, and can be bothersome, is when, when you make a decision anything is it wise and how, how can you know that it's wise you just do the best you can I think it's a really great thought right and, and then there becomes this other thought between virtuous decisions and survival decisions between Vashti who is exiled and quarantined and Esther right who works the system 
which one's wise? Are they, are they both? Um, interesting other proverbs, beatings purge the inside. Oh, yeah. I marked that one down in my, I was like, wow. Which, of course, Ben Franklin, ben Franklin put in the farmer's almanac, spare the rod, spoil the child, right? And, and hey, fair enough, not to go back on parenting, of course, that's not in Proverbs, that's in the Farmer's Almanac. John Wesley said that we do, uh, that we commit iniquity if we don't break the spirit of our children. If we do not break their spirit, we have done them not only a disservice, we've committed iniquity against the Lord, because a haughty spirit, you see, is the one that needs to be broken, and it's abhorrent before God. So this is sort of an interesting thing is, how do we inculcate in, in wisdom in people that seem to be committed to living in folly? I'll tell you, actually, I have no idea how to do that. Um, well, you do very well at 11 o'clock mass when the man, alone, bless this, bless last, and she blesses um, Edward, Edward Abbott, and, yeah, and, and, and Donald Trump. And there's this silence. You don't have to talk. Well, there's this it's, it's very, inter, very, uh, there's a, a level of acceptance in a very special way. I, I don't know how yeah, that, that, that happened in a strange way. Did I share this already? No, I didn't share this here. I'm going to go ahead and, and share something that happened that was really interesting. It happened about a month ago in which somebody during the prayers of the people, particularly at 8 o'clock, prayed for President Donald J. Trump and Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh and his family, and another person immediately said out loud, victims of sexual assault. Um, and, I, and I actually thought that was a very, it was a very interesting moment. And somebody complained to me about it because they found that to be very political and divisive. And I, I, I think it depends on how, I'm just going to be honest with you, this is an interesting proverbial thing. We, we often don't understand the prayers of the people. The prayers of the people are not for us to take turns listening to what everybody else prays for. Everybody actually should just say all their stuff at the same time. We're saying it out loud for our own sake, not for others, because ultimately God knows anyway. Right. Right? So sometimes we say, like, oh, I'll wait till he's done. That's not actually the right way to do it. Um, the other thing is, sometimes I think, and, and I it doesn't even matter what the people intend. Right? I think that's, that's this mistake, is that we think we know what they intend. Now, I'll tell you, I probably think I do know what the people intend when they say these things. But quite honestly, it's sort of a mistake for us to pray for our political candidates to win. It's a mistake. It's theologically wrong. We're meant to pray for justice and righteousness to be carried out on the earth. So I understand what it's like to think that injustice and righteousness have won an election. However, the Christian response to an election like that is to pray that whoever has won will in fact consider justice and righteousness. Mm -hmm. So I am very happy to pray for Donald J. Trump and Michael Q. Pence all the time and for Justice Brett Kavanaugh and his family to live lives in accordance with repentance and justice. I'm very happy to pray for that. I'm also very happy to pray for the victims of sexual assault, whether Dr. Ford was one of those or not. See, that name wasn't mentioned. Um, but this is an interesting thing about Proverbs is we can choose to hear those specific prayers of the people as divisive 
and nasty, or we can choose to say we should be praying for those people, absolutely, because in their hands, temporarily, are reins of power that can influence justice and equity and righteousness, and they deserve our prayers to do those things, instead of, God, I hope they get sick. We can do that. But it's wrong. I just, I just want to say it's, it's wrong. I mean, ultimately, our Christian hope is not in who wins elections. It's in the power of God working through people. Right. And that's a very conservative position that is core to my identity. I have concerns about who wins elections. We all do. But that's not our hope. I think that's a good proverb. <laughs> it's not in the book. But I think it's a good proverb. Um, in the book is that gifts and bribes can open the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think that's very shrewd. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I think if we give, this is an interesting thing to put back onto God. I think if we give a gift to get an outcome, it wasn't a gift. It was prepayment. So I think that's really important that Proverbs opens this question about what grace is like from God and from us. Does God give us gifts to get outcomes, or does God give us gifts to give us gifts? As a parent, you know what's very hard sometimes when children misbehave is to find yourself saying, uh, our relationship is very one-sided. I'm giving you all these things, and you're not giving anything back. Of course, that isn't why we gave the stuff. We can feel that way, but if we really gave it, we gave it. <laughs> and a gift has no strings. Sometimes, see, I think privileges, privileges are tied to outcomes. Gifts are not. And sometimes we forget that God's grace is not a privilege, it's a gift. So I think Proverbs does invite us continually to think about not only what's expedient and what works, but how does God function and what's the difference between being shrewd and operationally sound and being wise. Next week, we're going to get to read a relatively dour, I would say cynical book, Ecclesiastes, which will beg the question... What matters <laughs> at all? So I hope you enjoy that, and I will see you next week.